That light shining on the Apostle Paul on the Damascus Road was the same gospel light that illuminated Luther in that library at Erfurt where Luther yanked free the Bible and the gospel from the chain that was holding it down. It's the same gospel light that illuminates every man, woman, boy, and girl. And at the heart of the gospel is justification by faith alone in Christ alone. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. Johns County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 10.15 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 1. This morning, we want to look at verses 14 through 17. If you please stand to your feet. In honor of the reading of God's Word, I've entitled this sermon, The Glory of the Gospel. And I want to pick up in verse 14. Paul writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. When we come to verses 14 through 17, this is what commentators essentially conclude is the theme of Paul's epistle to the Romans. I've chosen to call it the glory of the gospel, but in these four verses, they're short verses, but they are theology-packed verses in which Paul's thesis for his magnum opus of Romans comes out. But I want us to begin with a story. On August 17th, 1505, a young man by the age of 21 felt called to the ministry, so he left the university and he entered a monastery of the Augustinian tradition in Erfurt, Germany. His name was Martin Luther. Augustine, if you remember from a couple of weeks ago, we mentioned him, was converted by the sovereign directing of God for him to read Romans as he contemplated the wickedness of his life, and through that experience, he was converted through the powerful message of the gospel. That was some 1,000 years before Luther. Augustine and Luther really were polar opposites. Augustine was converted by recognizing how sinful he was. Luther was converted because he recognized how fruitlessly righteous he tried to be. It would never be enough. But both of these men, Augustine and Luther, they were both converted while reading Romans. Augustine was fearful of God's judgment because of his unrighteousness. Luther was fearful of God's judgment because he recognized his righteousness would never be enough. In fact, 
Luther's piety garnered much attention just as Augustine's hypocrisy had garnered much attention 1,000 years earlier. Luther wrote to a friend, and I quote, I was indeed a pious monk and followed the rules more strictly than I can express. If ever a monk could attain heaven by his monkish works, I should certainly have done so. Of this all the friars who have known me can testify. And that led Luther to his spiritual father, John Stoppitz. Luther said, what works can come from a heart like mine? How can I stand before the holiness of my judge with works polluted in their very essence? And this is where John Stoppitz planted a seed of the gospel. He said to Luther, if God will not be merciful to me for the love of Christ, I shall never, with the aid of all my good works, stand before him, I must perish. Well, that set Luther on a quest, searching for a reason to love God instead of hate God. There is a famous painting of Luther that depicts him in the early morning hours in the convent library at Erford, where Luther, a monk in his early 20s, reads an open Bible from which a broken piece of chain is hanging. And as dawn's light pierces through the lattice, it illuminates both the Bible as well as the face of Luther beholding the Bible, and his finger is on one text, and it's the text this morning, Romans 1.17, the just shall live by faith. At that point, I imagine Luther singing, if the hymn was around back then, which it wasn't, what we sang this morning, my chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. And that is what happened. History tells us that Luther, interestingly, was converted by reading Romans 1.17, but he was also aided by Augustine's own words that Augustine had penned 1,000 years earlier because Luther came across a commentary note in which Augustine, commenting on, one, on Romans 1.17, said that when Paul speaks about the righteousness of God, it's not the righteousness by which God himself is righteous, but the righteousness he freely gives to all who place trust in him. It was therefore this text, Romans 1.17, that not only illuminated Luther's soul to the gospel, but it also illuminated the world of the 16th century post-Tenebrous Lux, after darkness light. Luther uncovered the light of the gospel that had been hidden. And that is what gave Luther power to stand at Worms alone because Luther understood he wasn't actually standing alone. He was standing with Christ and more correctly, he was standing in the righteousness of Christ and therefore he was not ashamed of the gospel. But like Luther after him, the Apostle Paul makes some bold statements about his desire to preach the gospel to the world. In verse 14, he says, I am under obligation to preach it. In verse 15, I am eager to preach it. In verse 16, I am not ashamed to preach it. Unlike Paul, however, we are not as eager as we should be to declare the gospel. We rarely sense our obligation to share Christ with others, even though we know that's wrong and we're often ashamed of it. But as bad as opposition is to the gospel in our own culture, it was far worse in opposition to the gospel in Paul's culture. Rome was a world symbol of progress and pride and power. Everyone in Paul's day wanted to be able to visit Rome once. But Paul recognized that all worldly empires self-proclaimed like Babylon and Assyria and Persia, Persia and Rome will all fall. Therefore, Paul wasn't going to Rome as a tourist. He was going as an evangelist. 
And that ambition has come out as we saw in verses 9 through 11. It was his heart's desire to go to Rome and to preach the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. But that would be something that would be mocked. It would be mocked. Tradition describes Paul as a short, balding, funny little man with bowed legs, beetle brows, and a crooked nose. And furthermore, he had bad eyesight, which means he probably squinted a lot, and he was not known by the world's standards as being a great orator. But you will never understand the Apostle Paul, and you will never understand his gospel until you understand that his entire demeanor, purpose, and personality was intricately tied up in the gospel he proclaimed. He said, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who have been saved, it is a power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart for since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom but please God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe and Paul's gospel was one and the same as Jesus's gospel as well as the prophets of old as he quotes Habakkuk in this very text it was the gospel of Luther it was the gospel of Augustine it was the gospel of Jesus and the apostles so Paul's discovery of justification by faith alone and Christ alone was not something he invented Rather, it was the jewel that he uncovered from the Old Testament which had laid hidden under the traditions of the Pharisees. And you need to understand that Luther's discovery of justification by faith alone was really a recovery of what had been lost in the darkness of the monasteries and the academy and the churches in the medieval era. That light shining on the Apostle Paul on the Damascus Road was the same gospel light that illuminated Luther in that library at Erfurt where Luther yanked free the Bible and the gospel from the chain that was holding it down. It's the same gospel light that illuminates every man, woman, boy, and girl. And at the heart of the gospel is justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Paul's gospel was Luther's gospel and Augustine's gospel. It is our gospel. So verses 14 through 17 cannot be overemphasized enough and in these verses we uncover the theme of Paul's epistle to the Romans what is the theme the glory of the gospel and in these verses Paul lists three reasons he gloried in the gospel he gloried in the gospel number one because of what it prompts secondly what it proves and third what it provides first of all notice with me in the text Paul gloried in the gospel because of what it prompts, and it prompts an indebtedness. We see this in verses 14 and 15. Notice the beginning of verse 14. Paul says, I am under obligation. Now that refers back to verse 13 and the fruit that he wished to reap in Rome among the Gentiles to whom he had been appointed as an apostle. I am under obligation. That's often been translated, I am a debtor which I think is probably getting closer to the essence of what Paul is expressing. The gospel, of course, does not put us in debt to God. He frees us and forgives us of our debt payment because Christ paid it in full. Paul is not saying that he's in debt to God, but he is in debt to others. He owes it to his fellow man to preach the gospel in order to reap a gospel harvest, verse 13. And so the gospel, therefore, imposes a debt 
on all who receive it, a debt which calls for repayment by passing the gospel on to someone else. Economists today speak about good debt and bad debt. There's good debt and bad debt. Well, Paul speaks about the best debt. The debt of being obligated to share Christ with others. Paul says it is a privilege. I'm under obligation. And in the rest of verse 14, he lists those he's indebted to. He says, I'm under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Now, Paul is obviously describing groups of people that lived at Rome. That much is made clear if you look at verse 15. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. He's describing, therefore, his moral indebtedness to every type of person he could possibly meet because Rome was a melting pot of the world's population. In Paul's way of thinking, he was in debt to anyone who needed to hear the gospel who still needed to be saved. And all of this flowed from his gratitude that he gave to God in verse 8, a gratitude that did not free him from his duty, but gave him a moral obligation to his fellow man. And for the apostle, it was because of his unique apostleship. For us, it's because we've been saved by the the same gospel Paul was saved. And Augustine and Luther, an indebtedness to proclaim the gospel to all nations and all classes within those nations. Notice verse 14, closer to Greeks and to barbarians. Now this simply means those influenced by, by Greek Hellenization, the culture and the customs of Greek Hellenization, that would be the Greeks. And then those on the fringes and frontiers, that would be the barbarians. In fact, that word barbarian is an onomatopoeia. When a Greek-speaking person, whether they were Jewish or Italian or Arabian or Grecian, heard a foreigner speaking a language they didn't understand, it sounded to them like bar, 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 bar. And so they came up with the term, you don't speak like me, you are a barbarian. You're not as cultured as me. So he's not speaking about Greeks of the country of Greek. He's speaking about any nation that had been influenced by Greek Hellenization through the influence of the Roman Empire compared to everyone else who was uncouth and uncultured and unrefined, the barbarians. And the next phrase completes the parallelism explaining the former. In other words, the Greeks and barbarians were understood to be the wise and the foolish. The wise were influenced by Greek Hellenization. They were cultured. As Aristotle says, wisdom was mental excellence in its highest and fullest sense. They were the cream of the crop. But the barbarians, they weren't wise. They were foolish, unrefined, uncultured, uneducated. Now, of course, there obviously were foolish Greeks and wise barbarians as well. But that's not Paul's point. He's borrowing the general categories of mankind for the day to simply say that he had a moral indebtedness to share Christ with all that he came in contact with. And what better place than Rome? Paul could go to the nations, and he planned to go to Spain, but by going to Rome, the nations could come to him. And that's why he says in verse 15, notice again, that he was eager to preach the gospel. Notice he says, to you. That is to say, those people... In the city of Rome, this melting pot of barbarians and Greeks. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul said, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am trusted with a stewardship. Paul was entrusted with the stewardship as a moral obligation to share Christ. 
And he said, I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, that is to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted to the circumcised. So it was a a particular group of people, the Gentiles, but Paul wasn't prejudiced because he often began when he went into cities on his missionary uh, journeys, he would go into the local synagogue and he would have discourse with Jews and Gentiles alike, ethnic Jews, Gentile proselytes. But ultimately, he said in 1 Thessalonians 2, 4, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. His desire was to please God. This moral obligation therefore came from the headquarters of heaven. That's why he told Titus, the preaching with which I have been entrusted comes by the command of God our Savior. These were Paul's marching orders. And it was because he gloried in the gospel that he saw his moral indebtedness. He said to Timothy, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. That is why he says in verse 15, I'm eager to preach the gospel. It is the good news. It is the greatest of all news. How can I keep this secret to myself? Now, it's a shame to be in debt, but what Paul is saying here is sort of ironic. He's saying that we are in debt to others for a message that we should not be ashamed of. The glory of the gospel is our indebtedness to share this good news. Isaiah 52, 7, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. We therefore are like Paul. We aren't apostles, but we are in the business of proclaiming the power and the authority of King Jesus. His power and authority in heaven and on earth that has been given to him, Matthew 28. That's why Jesus says, therefore go into all the world. We are on a campaign for King Jesus to make disciples of all nations, Greeks and barbarians, wise and foolish, Muslim and Chinese, We're to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that King Jesus has commanded. We live in a society that has the free marketplace for ideas a little bit. That's sort of beginning to be censored. But in one sense, free societies aid and abet false notions and philosophies and the like. But in another sense, free societies also allow the one truth that can and will take the world by storm and that is the glorious one and only gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ so in God's economy a free market for the spread of the glorious gospel of God's riches of grace is the key platform for us to campaign for King Jesus and we have an indebtedness to the world there are two ways you can incur debt The first way is to borrow money from someone, say $1,000, in which case you would be in debt until you paid it back. And in that case, if you didn't pay it back, um, you're the reason that you got yourself in debt. It's your own fault. But there's a second scenario in which you're given, say, $1,000 for someone else from a third party, in which case you would be in debt to the person you were instructed to give the money to until with integrity you delivered that money. Well, it's in that second scenario in which we, with Paul, are in debt. Paul hadn't borrowed anything from the Romans that he needed to repay. But Jesus Christ, that was the third party that entrusted him with the riches of the gospel for him to pass on. And Paul says, look, I'm under obligation. I am in debt. And we are too to pass the riches of the gospel on. 
The more you are grateful for the gospel, the bolder you will be to proclaim the gospel. The more grateful you are for the gospel, the more conviction you will have like Luther and Augustine and Paul to stand up for the one and only true gospel. Paul therefore gloried in the gospel because of what it prompts. It prompts an indebtedness to share the greatest news anyone could ever possibly hear, and we have been recruited by King Jesus to enjoy sharing this good news. But there's a second reason that Paul gloried in the gospel, not only what it prompts, that's an indebtedness, but secondly, what it proves, and that is a powerfulness. Notice with me in verse 16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now as Christians, none of us are apostles and only some of us are ordained ministers of the gospel, but we all possess the gospel. We have a moral debt to discharge it. We're debtors to the world. We get that. But here in verse 16, Paul is saying why this is such a big deal. He says... For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, I think some wrongly propose that um, when Paul says this, it's for rhetorical effect, that he's using a device known as a litotes. That is a, a deliberate understatement. So when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he's really expressing something differently. It would sort of be like if you're in a conversation with someone and they say something just sort of ribbing you and giving you a hard time and you look at them and you say, I'm not laughing. What you mean by that is, really, you are infuriated by what they say. This is, an, uh, this is a laotes. Now, some say that's what Paul is doing, as if what he's really saying when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he's really saying, I am proud of the gospel. And I think that this is said to protect Paul and to protect other Christians from the charge that we're never ashamed of the gospel, but I think this interpretation places a veneer on reality because we often, in our lowest moments, are ashamed of the gospel. I can think back years ago to a scene in high school. I took a, a, a class entitled Sociology where we were studying the different cultures of the world. It was a college credit class, and the teacher was trying to make the point that our society wasn't as religious as it used to be, and so he said, we're going to take a poll. He said, how many of you, for example, go to church every Sunday? And all at once, every head in the room turned around and looked at me because they knew I was a Christian. I was very bold about my Christianity. I shared my gospel in a public high school. But out of fear and shame, in that moment, I did not raise my hand. Because in that moment, I was worried about what people may say. The reality is we've all had moments of shame, shame of the gospel. Such admittance doesn't make it right. But it does remind us of the seriousness by which the Bible speaks about being ashamed of the gospel. For example, Jesus spoke of our inexcusable shame of Christ and his gospel as a shame that penetrates into eternity. Jesus said, forever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. And Paul spoke this way. In fact, he spoke to Timothy and of Timothy's inexcusable shame of the gospel, a shame preventing Timothy from suffering. Paul said, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel of the power of God. In other words, Timothy was being tempted to be ashamed of Paul and to be ashamed of the gospel. And Paul confronted him and said, this is inexcusable. But Paul also pointed to his own inexcusable shame. 
because the gospel was often viewed as foolish, the word of the cross, a shame that produced anxiety in Paul's life. So he told the Corinthians, in all honesty, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And he told him why. He said, I knew that my speech and my message were not, when viewed by the world, in plausible words of wisdom. So even Paul could be ashamed. But the shame Jesus spoke about was a pattern of shame, the result of which would be Christ would be ashamed of us. Paul and all true Christians, however, overcome that shame. Paul had said to the Corinthians as well, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And here in verse 16, that's the exact reason Paul refused to be ashamed of the gospel. So when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, that's sort of like saying, come on and fight me to a bully. When everyone around, including yourself, knows that you are scared to fight him, you are intimidated, there's truth to that statement. So when Paul says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he's really admitting that there is an underlying temptation we will all face, and yet in this circumstance, he wants the Romans to know this is no false bravado. I want you to know, Romans, Christians included, that I'm not dragging my feet going to Rome because I'm afraid of the many philosophers, the educated strata of society, the elites, the big dogs, those in higher education. On the contrary, I want you to know I am not ashamed of the gospel. He had said in verse 13 it was providence that had prevented him up to this point from coming. Now he goes on to explain why he and we have no reason to ever be ashamed. Here it is. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel for, that's an explanatory word, it is the power of God for salvation. He says to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Here's Paul's logic. He's saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel and I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God unto salvation. And I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. God's power is not limited. It comes to the Jew as well as to the Gentile. That's how he overcame any shame about the gospel. He remembered that it was the power of God, the only power unto salvation. Of course, you know that that Greek word power is dunamis. It's from which... We get our English word dynamite. You could say that the dynamite of God is the gospel message that brings salvation. But what Paul is saying to these Romans can't be missed because you do understand that Roman citizens were always boasting about their power. They had conquered the known world. And what Paul is saying is that I'm going to proclaim the power and the authority of another power of King Jesus when I preach this gospel. Because worldly power blows things up. Worldly power destroys things. God's power of the gospel blows up the wisdom of the world. It makes way for a new creation, the building up of an everlasting kingdom. God's power and the gospel message conquers souls. That's why Paul said he would thank God through Jesus Christ, verse 8. That's why he said in verse 1, I'm a slave of Christ. This is in contrast to the political power or the kingdoms of this world. These political power structures are of world's wisdom. And they create empires that ultimately will oppose God. And they will not make you slaves of God. They will make you slaves of the state to replace God. Caesar Augustus, son of God. 
Paul is saying, unlike the powerful Roman Empire, the empire of Christ frees and delivers us from bondage. It frees us from sin. It frees us from death. And that was the reason. This is what proved that Paul could glory in the gospel, the powerfulness of God. Paul suffered a lot for the gospel, didn't he? He had been imprisoned in Philippi. He had been chased out of Thessalonica. He was smuggled out of Damascus. He was laughed at in Athens. And what he's telling the Romans here is, more than anything, I want to come to you. I've dedicated my life to preaching the gospel. And Paul knew as an apostle that this was the gospel of Christ's kingdom. John said that the firstborn of the dead, Jesus Christ, is the ruler of kings on earth. So Paul wasn't ashamed to proclaim this gospel. Now, Paul is going to unpack in this letter the power of God for salvation. But let me just give you two things of basic and paramount importance. What does it mean when we say the power of God for salvation? It means this. Number one, God effectually calls to himself his own elect people. He rescues them from sin. He doesn't work effectually at all, but when the inward teacher of the Holy Spirit illuminates hearts, they are delivered from sin. And this includes the guilt of sin. In Ephesians, Paul said, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Delivers us from the guilt of sin. It delivers us from slavery to sin. Paul will say in Romans 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation because it delivers us from the guilt of sin. It delivers us from slavery to sin. It also delivers us from the wrath of God. Paul's going to say later in Romans 1 that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And he'll say in Ephesians that at one time we were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, and by nature we were children of wrath. The power of the gospel is a power to deliver us from guilt, slavery to sin, the wrath of God, and even spiritual death. Paul says we were dead in our trespasses, but we've been made alive in the spirit of Ephesians 2. So the power of the gospel is found in the fact that we are effectually called and saved and rescued and delivered from our miserable state of sin. That's the negative. Positively, we're brought into a state of righteousness. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are declared righteous by our faith, Romans 5.1. We're also brought into a state of holiness. Paul will describe this in Romans 6. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, Paul says. How can we who died to sin live in it? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We were saved to righteousness and holiness. We were saved to freedom. Paul told the Galatians in Galatians 5.1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So we've been taken from the negative arena of sin to righteousness and holiness and freedom and blessedness of fellowship with God. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ and blessedness of loving fellowship with God because God 
God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And blessedness of everlasting life. For God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. You see what Paul is saying when he's talking about the power of God unto salvation. He's saying that for our guilt we are given Christ's righteousness. For our slavery to sin we are made slaves of Christ. In place of the wrath of God we become sons of God. In place of alienation from God we have fellowship with God. In place of everlasting death we have everlasting life. So Paul at times may have been ashamed but he overcome that because he knew the power of God unto salvation. It's almost as if Paul is saying in effect I am not ashamed of the gospel because though someone else can preach the gospel better than me nobody is capable of preaching a better gospel it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe Paul was not ashamed he would go to Rome and he would preach this gospel he recognized therefore the universal scope It went to all types of people. Notice verse 16. It's the power of God for salvation. Notice this. To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, first of all, he's affirming faith alone. To everyone who believes. He's going to talk more about faith in verse 17. Paul never viewed it as meritorious. It is just the means of our salvation. And he never meant mental or theological assent merely. He's talking about wholehearted trust of God with your very existence. That's what it means to believe. And then he speaks here about a Jewish priority. He says the power of God for salvation is to everyone who believes to the Jew first. And you say, well, doesn't that make God prejudiced? Well, no, because what Paul is speaking about is to the Jew first in the sense of historically they were the first to receive God's message of deliverance. This is not a priority of ethnicity. God is not racist. Since Abraham, the first Jew, was actually a pagan, God had to start somewhere. So he started the Jewish nation from one man. This is not a priority of ethnicity. This is God's beginning activity to bring the Messiah from the Jews. You remember Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, salvation is from the Jews. Jesus didn't say that salvation is by the Jews or salvation is because of the Jews or that salvation is for the Jews exclusively. And yet there is a sense that it's also for Gentiles, the end of verse 16, and also to the Greek, Because the Jews rejected their heritage, didn't they? They rejected their Messiah. In fact, Paul and Barnabas said in Acts, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, speaking to Jews, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. But the reality is from the beginning of time, God's promise to Abraham in the book of Genesis was Abraham in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Genesis 12, 3. All the nations. And Jesus spoke this way. Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice and they will be one flock with one shepherd. But it is true that it first came to the Jews. What does Paul say in Romans 9? To the Jews belong the adoption, the glory of the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is over all. 
But then Paul will say in Romans chapter 10, there is no distinction between Jews and Greeks. Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation. And if you think back to that incident of Jesus' words to the Samaritan woman, you remember that the town of the Samaritan woman also recognized the power of God for salvation was to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, because they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world. Isaiah 45, 22, Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. So here's the picture you need to understand. Like Germany used to be with a wall of separation. That was redemptive history. But through Christ's death, through His death on the cross, through resurrection, through ascension, through His session, that wall has been torn down, Ephesians chapter 2. And because He is the enthroned Christ, there is no longer a distinction or a limitation on the power of God. There isn't one gospel for the Jew and then another gospel for the Gentile. The powerfulness of God is He is able to save the worst of sinners, the most vile of sinners. All the wickedness that Paul details in Romans 1, 18-32, the wickedness of the Gentiles. When Paul gets to the end of that, he still says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to any who believe. And so Paul isn't ashamed of the gospel. Paul gloried in the gospel because of its power. And that's what all of Romans is about. It's Paul unpacking the power of the gospel, not just for the world on a broad scale, but for your own heart. It is the power of the gospel for you to understand as dirty as your heart is, as sinful as your thought life is, as wicked as your actions are sometimes, you are not dependent upon your own good works to be received by God. It is Christ alone, through faith alone, in the power of the gospel. This is what led to Paul's execution. He gloried in the gospel. And he gloried in the gospel, number one, because of what it prompted, an indebtedness to share it with anyone and everyone. Secondly, he gloried in the gospel because of what it proved. It proved the powerfulness of God. Therefore, he wasn't ashamed of it. But he gloried in the gospel not only because of what it prompts, indebtedness, and what it proves, powerfulness, because number three, he gloried in it because of what it provides. And that is righteousness. Notice with me, In verse 17, Paul says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, how Paul proves exactly how this gospel is powerful is found in this verse. Again, his logic, don't follow it. He's saying, I'm going to glory in the gospel because of my indebtedness to proclaim it. And I'm going to proclaim it and not be ashamed of it because of its powerfulness to bring salvation. But the reason why it is so powerful has to do with what it provides. And it provides a righteousness. We could say an alien righteousness. A righteousness not of our own. And this is the verse which converted Luther. It's also the verse that all commentators agree constitute the text upon which Paul fleshes out in the rest of the letter. You could view it this way. This verse is the hinge on which the Apostle Paul's argument 
regarding the glory of the gospel turns. This is the thesis of his magnum opus. Therefore, it's very imperative for us to slow down at this point, to pay very close attention to exactly what Paul is saying. If you pick up any commentary on verse 17, you will read anywhere from 10 to 15 pages on what Paul is saying. What I want to boil this down to is the three foundational questions that is important for us to answer if we're going to understand the rest of Romans. And also, our answer to these questions will determine whether or not we believe in an orthodox gospel or not. So the stakes are extremely high. Question number one, what is meant by the righteousness of God? Question number two, what is meant by faith or from faith for faith or faith to faith as some translations have? And number three, what does Habakkuk have to do with any of this? First of all, what is meant by the righteousness of God? Well, he's talking about the ground of our salvation, which is God's righteousness. The beginning of verse 17, For in it, we know Paul's speaking about the righteousness of God. He plainly says it. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. This is the ground of the gospel's power. And that power is found, namely, in the righteousness of God, which is revealed. Paul is saying that in the gospel, God has acted decisively and sovereignly for our salvation in a way that is right. And when he says that righteousness is revealed, He's not saying it's something that people can find naturally. Isaiah 53, 6, all of us like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every man to his own way. In fact, in in Romans 3, uh, verse 9, Paul, Paul will say, What then, are Jews any better off than Gentiles? No, not at all. For we've already charged that both Jews and Gentiles are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they've all become worthless. No one does good, no, not even one. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So this righteousness is not something you can discover on your own. It's a righteousness that is revealed. You'll never seek it and you'll never understand it apart from the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit. And yet by revealed, Paul means even more. He means that it was to be revealed in action and operation, that the righteousness of God was to be made manifest in saving effect. There are four principles or ideas that are brought out in this passage. Number one, the power of God. We saw that in verse 16. Number two, the salvation of God, verse 16. Number three, revelation, here in verse 17, the revealing. And number four, the righteousness of God. Now, where are these four concepts found in other places in the Bible that can explain what Paul is speaking about? I'll give you a couple. In Psalm 98, oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. There's the power of God. His right hand and his glory... His his right hand and his holy arm, there's the power of God, have worked salvation. There's the second word Paul uses, for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. There's that word again. He has revealed, there's the third concept, his righteousness. There's the fourth concept, in sight of all the nations. Even the psalmist spoke about Jews and Gentiles being included. Here's another verse, Isaiah 46. 
I will bring near my righteousness. It is not far off. To say it's not far off means that God's going to reveal it. So there you have the concept of reveal. He's going to bring it near. And my salvation, there's that word again, will not delay. I will put, that's the power of God, salvation in Zion for Israel is my glory. Meaning, Israel reveals the glory of my power to save. Now that's a sampling. You can go and read Isaiah 51, Isaiah 56, Isaiah 62, Isaiah 54, Isaiah 61. They all showcase these four things. God's power, His salvation, His revelation, His righteousness. So it becomes apparent, as one commentator says, that the making known of salvation and the showing forth or revelation of righteousness are parallel expressions. In other words, in the language of the Old Testament, the salvation of God and the righteousness of God in such contexts are virtually synonymous. The working of salvation and the revelation of righteousness are to the same effect and it's that same exact thing that Paul is speaking of here. So you say to yourself, so far so good. God saves. He saves by his righteousness, which is a supernatural revelation put into practical action. Great, but we still haven't answered the question, what exactly is God's righteousness? And as I said, pull down any commentary and you will read until your eyes begin to bleed. But I will provide for you three categories in which to categorize the three main views. What does it mean when Paul speaks about the righteousness of God? The first one, people say the righteousness righteousness of God refers to a divine attribute. A divine attribute. In this view, righteousness describes God's character which is consistent with his actions to only do right. Think, for example, Genesis 18.25 shall not all the judge of all the earth do what is right. So God loves righteousness, he hates wickedness, and that's what makes him just. The gospel does demonstrate God's justice in one sense. If you flip with me to Romans chapter 3, we see it in verse 25. Paul says, speaking about Christ Jesus, he's the antecedent in verse 24, and Paul says in verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness, that's a character quality, at the present time so that he might be just, that's a character quality, and the justifier as judge of the one who has faith in Jesus. So the gospel does reveal the character quality of God's righteousness, but so does the law of God. The law of God does as well. Romans 2 and verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The law itself reveals God's righteousness. Wasn't that exactly what Luther was terrified by? It was the righteousness of God's holy, pure wrath. So obviously righteousness is a character quality of God, but is that really what Paul is speaking about here in verse 17? Well, some people say no, and that leads to the second view, and that is to say that the righteousness of God doesn't refer to a divine attribute, but rather, number two, to a divine activity. And in this view, righteousness describes God's saving intervention with particular focus on his saving power to be loyal to his covenant, to defeat all evil, to vindicate his people. There are two prominent 
New Testament scholars in recent days, Ernst Caseman is one, and N.T. Wright, Tom Wright, which some of you are familiar with, promote this view. Tom Wright calls God's righteousness here, and I quote, the covenant faithfulness, the covenant justice of the God who made promises to Abraham. And Wright's interpretation is referred to as the new perspective. And I'll just tell you, with a title like that, it should make all of us nervous because the word new infers that it's something different than what Luther and the Reformers taught. And what Wright affirms is not entirely wrong because we affirm that God is righteous and because he's righteous, he does that which is right. He's always faithful to his covenant promises, but Wright is only right insofar as he says that. He doesn't go far enough because he never speaks about Luther's language of imputed righteousness so that leads to the third view is God's righteousness a divine attribute is it a divine activity or is it a divine achievement this view says that God's divine achievement is revealed in the gospel and it is only realized through the righteousness of God's son a righteousness imputed to the believer such a right standing with God is required by God because he's a righteous God. Because he's just, he cannot accept us apart from Christ's alien righteousness given to us. And it is Christ's atoning death that achieves this status for the sinner who believes. Going back to verse 16, to everyone who believes. And this is revealed in the message of the gospel. It's freely bestowed on us apart from our works, based solely on the works of Christ, the obedience of Christ, and on the work of Christ upon the cross as our substitute, as the Son of God, His righteousness becomes our righteousness through faith. And I think it's this third view which is clearly the correct view. Paul is speaking about the imputed righteousness of Christ given to the believer. In fact, Paul will say in the book of Philippians that he wants to be found in him, that is in Christ, not having a righteousness of his own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So it is The righteousness of God in one sense, but it is a righteousness that comes from God to the believer. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become what? The righteousness of God. So Paul makes the point about the righteousness of God because all men are tempted apart from Christ to talk about their own righteousness. Romans 10.3, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God, seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. That is to say, people try to work and earn salvation. Now, Paul is abundantly clear in this letter that such righteousness of God, as he says in chapter 5, is the free gift of righteousness. Chapter 5 The one act of righteousness. Chapter 5, by one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners. So by the one one man's obedience, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, the many will be made righteous. So this righteousness that we receive is forensic. That is a legal term denoting a judge's just declaration. God doesn't wink at sin. God does not brush sin under the rug. But because Christ was righteous and he was punished in your place at Calvary, his righteousness, when you have faith, is given to you after you give your sin to him because he represented his people. And God is a judge who always does right. So when God declares a sinner not guilty, he's basing that 
upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Justification teaches that the God of all the earth declares the penitent sinner who has faith in Christ as righteous. This is why John Calvin says, I take the righteousness of God to mean that which is approved before his tribunal. You are in court and you are guilty of sin. But God, the righteous judge, declares us not guilty because of Christ's righteousness. And if that word justification is a big word for you, especially for kids, kids, if you don't understand the word justification and I ask you, what is justification after the sermon? Just say, Pastor Andrew, justification means it's just as if I never sinned. That's justification. And your acceptance before God is solely based upon that. That is why we have worked extremely hard when we planted this church to avoid a culture of legalism. I do not want to police your life. But guess what? I don't want you to police my life either. My acceptance before a holy God is based upon Christ. Not anything that I do, not anything that I say, nothing you do, nothing you say. This was the problem in Galatia. They were biting and devouring one another because they thought they were superior to one another. And in fact, there's an undertone of this in Romans. The Jews think they are superior to the Gentile Christians. And Paul says, let me set the record straight. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm gonna come to you and I'm gonna preach this gospel and I want you to understand that this gospel is the great equalizer. It is the great leveler. Without it, you cannot be saved. It's the only hope that we have. And so this righteousness of God can be thought of as a divine attribute because God is righteous. It can be thought of as a divine activity. He is the God who saves, who's faithful to his covenant. But you're only partly right if you affirm that. You must also affirm it's not merely a divine attribute. It's not merely a divine activity. It is a divine achievement, the righteous standing that God graciously grants the sinner who comes to him in faith. And apart from faith, there is no salvation. Now that takes us to another important question in verse 17. We're talking about what the gospel provides, namely righteousness. And we've seen the ground of our salvation is God's righteousness. But now we need to ask, what is meant by that phrase in verse 17, from faith for faith? Or some of your translations will say faith to faith. Um, Notice again in verse 17, for in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And then Paul says, from faith for faith. He's talking here about the means of the gospel, sola fide, and we're going to talk a lot about this as we go through Romans, so I'm going to be quick here. I will admit to you that I prefer the NASB and the King James. Sean will be happy that I prefer that here. I think it's a smoother translation. It alleviates confusion. It says, from faith to faith. Paul's talking about from beginning to end, faith. That is the means of salvation. Now, there have been many throughout church history who have played around with this phrase, and many of the early church fathers said that what Paul is talking about is from the faith of those in the Old Testament like Abraham to the faith of those in the New Testament like Paul, it's the same means of salvation. And they may have a point because Paul uses the word revealed here in verse 17. What is revealed? And he also quotes from Habakkuk. So they may have a point. Calvin says this. What some think that there is here an implied comparison between the Old and New Testament is more refined than well-founded. In other words, that's Calvin's way of saying, nice try, 
doesn't work. For Paul does not here compare the Old Testament saints who lived under the law with us. That's not his point at all. His point is to point out the daily progress that is made by every one of the faithful. That is every one of the true Christians. So from beginning to end, salvation is received and we persevere by God's grace alone, but also in faith alone from first to last. Later, Paul speaks in Romans 3 about the righteousness of God through faith and Jesus Christ for all who believe. So he uses pistos, faith, believe twice in that verse, just like he does here, from faith for faith. So what does he mean? He's just talking about sola fide. There's no reason to complicate this. Regardless of how you look at this phrase, maybe he is speaking about the faith of those in the Old Testament and the faith of those in the New Testament. In any event, the point is the same. Nobody can be a saved apart from faith alone. It is not your baptism that saves. It is not church membership that saves. It is not you living a clean and moral life that saves. It is not you honoring the Sabbath that keeps you saved or gets you saved. It is not being successful in life that God says, wow, this one's done really good. I think I'll take him. It's faith alone. Faith alone, sola fide. But the ground of the gospel is God's righteousness. The means of the gospel is faith alone. Now Paul looks to the support of the gospel. What is the support of the gospel? It's God's unchangeable word. Notice the end of verse 17. I'm going to read it from the beginning. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. He's quoting Habakkuk 2, verse 4. Now let me just stop here for a minute. We applaud Paul on the one hand. Think about this. He's just spoken about sola gratia, grace alone, power of God unto salvation. He's also just spoken about sola fide, faith alone, from faith to faith. And now he's operating according to sola scriptura, scripture alone. He's saying, I'm basing all of this, I'm supporting my whole argument on the Old Testament as it is written. We applaud him for that. On the other hand, all of us are saying internally, whether you want to admit it or not, Paul, couldn't you think of a better quotation than from an obscure prophet in the Old Testament? I mean, what in the world does Habakkuk have to do with this? Well, before we criticize Paul the preacher too harshly, let us hear what he says. Notice the phrase, the righteous shall live by faith. What has he been talking about? He's been talking about faith alone. He's been talking about a righteousness that is not ours. He's making a very important point by showing faith alone is consistently taught throughout the Bible. That's why I'm okay with the interpretation from faith to faith to speak about, at least in application, the faith of those in the Old Testament, the faith of those in the New Testament. Salvation's always been the same. It's always been by grace alone through faith alone. Now, what does Habakkuk have to do with this? Well, in the context, Habakkuk was a prophet during the reign of wicked Jehoiakim. And Habakkuk was terribly bothered by the fact that wicked men were essentially given no leash for their wickedness. And he tolerated and he allowed sinful practices to be tolerated among Judah, the southern kingdom, like exploiting the needy. Today, by the way, that would be the middle class. Or violence. Today, by the way, that would be slaughtering infants in the womb of a mother. Uh, Third, strife and contention. Today, that would mean all the political heat in the political climate. So the prophet is concerned, God, how can you be just and allow this? So he does what's right. He goes to God. He says, God, why do you allow the wicked in Judah to oppress the righteous? 
and God answers. God says, evildoers will be punished. The Chaldeans or the Babylonians are coming. Well, that didn't really comfort him a lot to know that the Babylonians were going to come and invade not just the wicked, but also the righteous of Judah. So he goes back to God and asks another question. He says, why, God, would you allow the Babylonians to terrorize the Jews who are far more righteous by comparison than foreign invaders? I mean, I understand, God, I'm complaining about the wicked in Judah, but the wicked in Judah are far, far less wicked than the wicked of Babylon. And God doesn't answer. So Habakkuk stations himself on the watchtower. He waits for God to answer. And God says, the Chaldeans or the Babylonians will be punished, but the righteous shall live by faith. It is the expectation of God that no matter how much evil assails us, how many storms blow on us, we have no hope apart from wholly trusting that God knows what he's doing. We have faith in him. And then God gives Habakkuk a vision. It's the scene of Yahweh's presence coming down Mount Paran where God comes to the bottom of the mountain and he stands firm and he shakes the earth. And Habakkuk begins to tremble. God, is your judgment coming on us? And God answers, yes, I will discipline my people. They will be taken into captivity, but I will punish Babylon and ultimately I will deliver my people. And when you go to the New Testament, you understand that Rome is Babylon. In any worldly empire is Babylon and God is a God of war, Exodus 15. And he has gone to war for the sake of his people. Therefore, the righteous only live by faith. You cannot get out of the trouble of this world on your own. There is no politician that will deliver you from this trouble. There is nobody that can wipe the slate clean from all the sins that you have committed. That is why the righteous only live by faith. And when Habakkuk heard that, he stopped speaking. He picked up his pen and he began to write and he wrote a psalm of trust in Yahweh. He said, for though the fig tree shall not flourish, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation because I know that the righteous Only live by faith. The gospel has not changed. Paul's gospel was Jesus' gospel. It was Augustine's gospel. It was Luther's gospel. It was Calvin's gospel. It was Habakkuk's gospel. It is our gospel. It is our only hope. And in the rest of Romans, Paul unpacks the glory of this gospel. He's just started. All he told us in these verses is why he gloried in the gospel. This is like um, the cliff notes. The rest of the book opens up the panoply of the glorious riches of the gospel. I hope you know Christ. I hope you're standing in his righteousness, not in anything you think you can do. Christians reveal their true Christians by one quality. You can reduce it to this, and the quality is humility. Are you humble? Have you been humbled by your own sin? Have you declared to God, the righteous shall live by faith? You are the God of my salvation. I have no hope without you. Please save me. That's our only hope. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, according to scripture alone. And any other message of salvation is another gospel. So let us rest in this gospel. I hope this sermon from God's word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, 
you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.